Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We'll be turning our attention back to Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 4. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, begins this great catalog of the heroes of the faith. And ordinarily, when I talk about these heroes of the faith, I do it in a certain way. There's a point that I'm always trying to make. And so if you've been paying attention in past sermons, you've probably heard me say this more than once, that the fact that the heroes of the faith who are cataloged in Hebrews 11 are all Old Testament figures, teaches us that there's a continuity in God's plan of salvation. So, for example, if if you were one of those people who thought, in the Old Testament people were saved by works, and in the New Testament they're saved by grace, a chapter like Hebrews 11 should shake you up. Because you're now being told that all these Old Testament figures were justified by faith, not by works, just like everybody else. That, That everybody who's ever been saved has been saved by grace, not through their merit. And so there's a a through line of grace even in the Old Testament. Salvation wasn't different for them than it is for us. It was still uh, predicated on looking to Christ. That's usually the point that I'm trying to make whenever this passage comes up. But this passage is about to come up and I want to make a slightly different point. I want you to see that in this context there's actually something else that the author of Hebrews is pointing out. Remember, the book of Hebrews is being written to a Christian community which is seeing you know, a good number of its members slide back into the tradition they had been saved from. They'd grown up relying on the Old Testament sacrificial system. They had been delivered from that by grace. And now, after persecution, after enduring a lot of stuff as Christians, they were turning back to those old certainties They were turning back to those old rituals and traditions, that sort of thing. And there was an irony in this. And it's an irony that the author of Hebrews is here pointing out. You want to leave Christ? You want to turn your back on Christ and abandon Christ and go back to the tradition you came from? Go back to the tradition whose heroes and founders were these great Old Testament figures? Well, those are not the heroes and founders of the tradition you're going back to. Those are actually the heroes of the faith you are turning your back on. Ironically, like there is nothing to go back to because the thing you're going back to anticipated and longed for the thing that has come. These are not heroes of works righteousness. These are heroes of faith. So with that in mind, let's begin in verse chapter 4. And hear these words. We're going to read not the entire chapter, but we'll read through to verse 16, starting in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. and He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear They are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The word of the Lord. When we're pointed to these heroes of the faith, we're basically having a question answered for us. And the question is, what does faith look like? What does it look like to live a life of faith? And the more we gaze on that question and think about the answer, we learn not just what it looks like to live the life of faith, but we also learn a little bit about what faith desires, what faith longs for. We learn about what faith wants from us, what faith expects from us. And to think about all those things, I want to talk about etymology a little bit. Etymology, the study of the origin of words. And I want to share with you one of my favorite words. One of my favorite words because I love the way it sounds. One of my favorite words because I love what it signifies. The word is sabotage. Sabotage. Uh, Sabotage, which is a great uh, word that we borrow from the French Uh, It means basically to destroy things secretly from the inside. I grew up uh, as a child of the 70s being sort of entertained by World War II movies and that sort of thing. The heroes of the resistance against the Nazi evil were people who for a long time had to rely on sabotage. They didn't have the physical strength to confront the enemy, so they had to rely on sabotage, planting bombs in the dead of night to blow up railroad tracks, that sort of thing. Uh, Sabotage. The origins of the word are kind of interesting. Uh, If you you know your your word meanings a little bit, you probably think that the origin of the word sabotage comes from wooden shoes, because wooden shoes are sabots. Uh, They're called sabots, and we have a story that at a certain point in history, Uh, these wooden shoes were put to interesting use. 
The story is variously told. Sometimes it's set in uh, France, the workers of Lyon. Sometimes in England, the Luddites who were opposing the Industrial Revolution and the, the way technology was taking over. And sometimes, this makes the most sense to me, in the Netherlands, where people, I'm told, still wear wooden shoes, or at least sell them in, in souvenir shops and that sort of thing. Right? And the idea was that these workers, when they went to work, because they opposed the work that they were being forced to do, they didn't like the way that the machines were taking over and rendering the humans redundant, did the only thing they could do, they took their wooden clogs and they threw them into the gears of the machines. They sabotaged the machines. And that little act of defiance gave us the word sabotage. Etymologists will say, not really. That there's a different meaning to the words scientifically. I prefer the story to the reality. And I'm going to hold on to this wooden shoes story for as long as I can. Not only because I love the idea that there's actually a practical use for wooden shoes, but also because I believe that even in these small and insignificant and seemingly hopeless acts of defiance against evil, you see a kernel of faith being lived out. You see confidence. That these are acts not just of destruction, but these are acts of faith in a future that seems unlikely at the moment of the act. Right? If you were in the French resistance setting bombs in the dead of night circa 1941, you didn't see a bright future in store for what you were doing. But you did what you did out of hope. That one day, the sun would set on the evil that seemed to reign everywhere. That small act was an act of hope. And it was a small gesture. right? Throwing your wooden shoes into the gears, it doesn't stop things for long. It's a small, seemingly insignificant gesture. You're putting to use something really humble. Like finding a use for your, your pointy wooden shoes. And yet that tiny act has a huge significance. There's a huge significance in expressing the hope that is in your heart. Every defiance of evil, no matter how hopeless, is an expression of a hope that a future promise, a future goodness will be revealed. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us as the author of Hebrews sets up for us great heroes of the faith, that what those heroes of the faith actually did sometimes is insignificant. The things that they did that, that justified them don't seem that heroic. None of the heroes of the faith that we've seen cataloged so far won great battles. They weren't great conquerors. They weren't glorious kings. They weren't mighty artists or anything like that. They did tiny things, insignificant things, seemingly, things all of us are capable of doing ourselves. They showed confidence in the future. Their actions were based on a confidence that they had in the future. Look at Abel. In verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You remember that story? That's all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. So the author of Hebrews is taking us way back to the beginning. Right? Chapters 1 and 2, you're getting the story of creation. In chapter 3, the fall. And now we're in chapter 4, and that's where we're being in the story of faith. With that, that uh, brotherly, 
relationship where brotherly love did not continue, contrary to our text this morning. Right? Cain and Abel. Two brothers who offer a sacrifice. One is an acceptable sacrifice. The other isn't. It's significant the nature of that sacrifice that Abel makes. That very first sacrifice that is made is, is the sacrifice of a lamb by a shepherd. That is an acceptable sacrifice in the sight of God. If you go back to Genesis 4, it may surprise you that the focus of Genesis 4 is not on Abel and his acceptable sacrifice. It is on Cain, his unacceptable sacrifice, and the conversation that God and Cain have both before and after his murder of his brother Abel. But here, the moment that we're being pointed to is Abel's sacrifice. Abel trusted in the right sacrifice. He put his trust in a costlier sacrifice, in the sacrifice that God had commanded. He had confidence in the lamb that was slain. The very first example of faith we're pointed to is a faith whose confidence was literally in the sacrifice of a slain lamb. Abel was relying on the right sacrifice when everybody else was looking to the wrong ones. Cain did make a sacrifice, but he made the sacrifice that seemed right to him. He made a sacrifice of the things that he valued. He did not make the sacrifice that God required. We've already seen earlier in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. It wasn't up to human beings to design the sacrifice they thought would be best. Instead, God expected the sacrifice to be the sacrifice of this slain lamb. So Abel had a confidence that gave him a strength not to follow the example of his older brother. Not to follow the example that that maybe a lot of us would have been swayed by. Instead, he had confidence in what God had commanded. He had confidence in the right sacrifice. And we're told that through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. You see this also in Genesis 4. It is the blood of Abel that cries out, that speaks. When Abel himself is slain, his shed blood speaks to God, cries out to God. Through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Just as through our faith, though we die, we shall live. That's the legacy of faith. Faith is a confidence in the lamb that was slain. There are other kinds of confidence that were pointed to. If you look at the example of Enoch, starting in the next sentence, it's verse 5. It's interesting here, this is uh, verse 5 and 6. The author of Hebrews, in talking about Enoch, basically doubles or more the whole of our information about this guy, Enoch. If you go back to Genesis 5, where Enoch is first mentioned, there's probably less said about him than there is said here. What we know is that Enoch was a guy who walked with God. He pleased God, and then he was translated into the presence of God without having died. That's what we know about Enoch. We're told that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And then the author of Hebrews makes an application. He says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. So if Enoch pleased God, it was because he pleased him by faith. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. What was the faith of Enoch based upon? It was based upon this confidence, a confidence in a future reward. Enoch had confidence that God would reward those who turned to him. So just as Abel had confidence in the sacrifice, Enoch had confidence in God that God would reward him. And that confidence in a future reward is an important part of faith. But Enoch was trusting in good things to come when others were seeking, pardon the low blow, but they were seeking their best life now. They were focused on how to live most happily now. How to see to their needs now. But Enoch wasn't. Enoch's focus was on a future reward that put now into a different perspective. Get a faith, a confidence in the future to change the way he lived now. It's impossible to draw near to God without this kind of faith. This confidence in future reward, believing that he exists and that he rewards us. That's not the only kind of confidence, though. There's another kind of future confidence that Noah exemplifies. Because we go straight from Enoch in chapter 5 to the story of Noah, which is Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark, saved his household. So Noah had a kind of faith. God came to him, and he warned him of a coming judgment. And the way that Noah lived his life at that moment changed. When Noah was warned of this coming judgment, the whole trajectory of his existence was altered. He became a carpenter, a shipbuilder, right? Everything changed. He became a, a zookeeper. The, none of these were things that, that Noah had, had done a skills inventory and turned out this is what you ought to do as a profession, right? Noah's whole life changed because he was warned of a judgment to come and he believed it. And we know that he believed it because of how he lived. Because you don't like drop everything and start building a giant wooden structure in a landlocked country surrounded by people ridiculing you for your stupidity unless you believe that there's a reason, unless you believe in the judgment to come. So while Enoch had a confidence in future reward, Noah had a confidence in future judgment. And that confidence in future judgment stood him in good stead. It saved his household because he believed that the flood was coming. He had faith that God would keep that word. And he changed his life as a result. Noah was living like judgment is coming when everyone around him was living however they wanted. He sacrificed. He made a fool of himself. He gave up his dreams and his ambitions for his life. Because he believed a judgment was coming. But he was surrounded by people who didn't. And those people enjoyed all the things that, that he denied himself. They enjoyed all the things in life that he couldn't. Because he believed something was coming that they didn't believe. He had confidence in God's future judgment. And that was faith. That was also faith in action. Believing that he had to do these things or be destroyed 
That was faith. You must believe in the judgment to come in order to escape it. Become fellow heirs with Christ. By this, the author of Hebrews says, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When we have confidence in the judgment to come, we too condemn the world, so to speak, but become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. By having confidence that the judgment God has promised will come, we escape it. And then, the author of Hebrews introduces us to the real hero. The people who are lapsing back into the old ways are lapsing back because they have a cultural identity that has a strong pull on them. They are sons of Abraham. They are sons of Abraham. And they believed in Christ for a while. They thought, yeah, this Christianity stuff, this sounds okay, but but it got hard. And they went back to those old ways. They want to go back to the bosom of Abraham. The author of Hebrews says, no, actually, Abraham, he was one of us. He was one of us, justified by faith and not by works. And you can see this at the very beginning of his story. Genesis 12, when he is called. The first calling in Abraham's life, before he's even Abraham, is to leave home and to go into the unknown. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. It took faith. Here was a guy who was settled, a wealthy man, a man with privileges, inheritance, a man with a patrimony. And God comes to this man who finds himself in such comfortable circumstances and he says, I'd like you to leave and I'd like you to go out into the unknown because I have this other place for you. Abraham didn't have any documents or deeds that God gave him. He didn't have anyone to bear testimony to the fact that where he was going was better than where he was. And yet he sold it, he packed it all up, and he made the move. A lot of us have had to do things like this in life. We've had to journey a little bit into the unknown. Maybe we haven't left the Ur of Chaldees and gone to the promised land, but we've had to leave places where we had friends and family, places where we had good jobs, and go out into the unknown. Sometimes we've had a sense of what was waiting for us, And we turned out to be wrong about that. Sometimes we had no idea what was waiting for us. Some of us are here because we knew people. Some of us are here because we had job offers. Some of us are here because we knew somebody who used to live here and it sounded like a good place. We've journeyed into the unknown. And you only do that when you have confidence in the one who sends you. You only act that way when you believe that the God who is calling you intends to bring you to a home. Intends to bring you to a home. You have confidence, in other words, in God's providence. If you don't have confidence in God's providence, you will not leave behind the things you have. You'll cling to them. But Abraham wasn't like that. Abraham was trusting God to provide a home for him when he followed his call into the unknown. If we have faith, if we have that confidence in God's providence, then when He calls us into the unknown, we follow Him. And He does. 
You may think some people have been called into the unknown, but not me, but you're wrong. All of us have been called into the unknown. All of us need confidence in God's providence. But all of us, whether we realize it or not, are relying on it. You only leave your security behind when you look forward to something better. And Abraham looked forward to something better. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. It's not just that he was willing to leave behind all that he had because he thought he was going to get something better. It's that he recognized that all that he had wasn't as good as he thought it was. It didn't have foundation. He was looking forward to a city whose builder and designer was God. If God was the architect of that home, that would be a better home than anything he left behind. That's faith as confidence in God's providence. Abraham, that great hero of the faith, and in our, our uh, text this morning, you would think would get the final word, but he doesn't. We're introduced to a fifth hero of the faith. You know the story. It may seem like an unlikely hero of the faith. It's Abraham's wife, Sarah, who gets the last word. Yeah, I always say at, at camp, uh, when I'm lecturing to uh, young men and women, I always give the women the final word because they're going to have it anyway. And if I say I'm giving it to you, then at least it seems like I haven't lost control of the conversation. But here Sarah gets the final word. And, and it's interesting because the word that she gets changes the way you understand her story. Because the way you understand her story in Genesis 18, you would think this is actually not a hero of the faith. This is the opposite of the hero of the faith. This is a person who when God makes his promise that you will bear a son, she laughs at the ridiculousness of that. And then she stops talking about it just because she doesn't want to, you know, put a target on herself. But you don't see faith as the motivating principle in the story in Genesis 18. And yet, here are the words of the author of Hebrews. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah was believing that God would keep his promises long after he'd missed the window. Like God had a window, a biological window, in which he could have fulfilled a promise like this, and he didn't even make this promise until it was far too late. And you're thinking, you know, I know you live in eternity, Lord, but, you know, you could get these things a little bit righter. How had he missed it by so far? She laughed, and, and I think in laughing, maybe had a good instinct. I think Sarah kind of one of those figures like Peter, who we look at piously and think, oh, well, Peter, you know, asked the wrong questions or had the wrong reaction, but actually maybe had just the right one, like was, was saying the things that, that we would all say if we weren't overawed by the circumstances, right? Sarah was well past childbearing years, and God says, you're going to have a son, and she laughs. She laughs, and yet... The same person who doubted comes to have faith. She comes to consider God faithful. I don't know about you, but that gives me some encouragement. Because I may not be that much like Abel, always trusting in the right sacrifice. 
may not be much of an Enoch for sure. Much of a Noah even. And certainly no Abraham. But Sarah I can relate to. Because God has made promises to me and I've laughed at them. And I said, no, 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 no. no. This is not going to happen. God has done things in my life and I've said, nope, sorry. That's not God's plan for my life, whether he says so or not. And yet, even Sarah, the author of Hebrews looks back and says, Sarah is an example of faith to us. She struggled. And yet she found herself a hero of the faith because she had confidence in God's faithfulness. It wasn't that she was strong in faith. That she was the kind of person that if you came up to her and said, oh, you know, happy 75th birthday and happy baby shower. She would say, wow, okay, I'll believe that. Not at all. And yet she was a hero of faith. Not because she was credulous. Not because she was one of those people who just believes whatever people tell her. She didn't even believe it when angels came and told her. She was skeptical. And yet, she came to have faith that God would keep his promises as unlikely as they were. That God would come even though he'd waited far too long. That's a hero of faith. That's an example that we can learn from. People like Sarah can have confidence in God because they come to recognize the truth of the words that God speaks in Genesis 18. Right? When Sarah laughs and Abraham is like, eh, I don't think so. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Are you telling me there's something I can't do? Have I reached my limit? I can create the world, but you can't have a child? Faith is coming to realize that that's a rhetorical question. And the answer is no. There is nothing too hard for him. All these examples of faith, even though the instances are different, the things, that, the, the things they did were different, all of them have a sort of common wellspring of confidence. Like all of them flow from a confidence that God will do what he says he will do. That he will take care of us. That he will make the right sacrifice. It's all a confidence that is directed towards him. And that's what faith is. Confidence directed towards God. If you think about that, you think about this idea of faith as a thing, a strength that draws on, on a future confidence, on a confidence in what is not seen, then you can begin to think about what it is that faith longs for. It may seem strange to you to, to think about faith this way, to personify faith, say that faith has a longing or faith has a desire. But, but I think I'm following in a good tradition here uh, because if you look at the words of God to Cain that I mentioned earlier, God does exactly this kind of thing, this sort of rhetorical shift. When he talks about sin. God says to Cain these words. This is in Genesis 4, 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. There's a conflict between the individual and the power of his sin. 
His sin desires to rule over him. It is in conflict with him. And God says, you must rule over it. You must fight it. You are in conflict against your sin because it desires to rule you. So you can understand here, sin has a desire. Right? Sin can be personified in that way. We can understand that there's a sort of a, a treacherous longing behind our sin. It wants to be our master. And we have to fight it. Now, in the same vein, I'm saying to you that faith has a similar desire, a similar kind of aspiration. Because we're always at war with the desire sin has to rule over us, because we always have to fight it, the one thing that's true about us is we can always only ever be strangers and exiles in this land, in this place. This will always be for us a place of strife, a place of conflict. This is not, this world, this place where we live is not a place of peace for us because when we find peace here, it's because we've been mastered. Because we've been ruled over by sin. We've given up. When you find yourself at peace with the world, you will then know you have lost. This is not a place where you can ever be at peace. This is only a place where you can be a stranger and an exile. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. This is our final paragraph. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. I love what he's doing there. This is, this is kind of a worldview thing. He's looking at the way they talk, the way they describe themselves, and he's drawing a deeper conclusion out of it. If you talk about yourself as a stranger in this world, if you talk about yourself as an exile, there's an assumption that underlies labels like that. You are assuming something, and what you're assuming is your home is elsewhere. You're seeking some other homeland. This is not your home. So these people of faith were strangers and exiles, and what we learn from that is their confidence was directed towards a future home, not this one. They were looking for, longing for, a homeland. Faith longs for a homeland, but not this homeland. Faith won't settle for this homeland. It won't settle for making peace with this world as it is lying in corruption. So faith seeks a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Again, remember, first audience, he's speaking to people, a lot of whom are exactly seeking to go back to where they came from. They did journey into the unknown based on the call from God, and then the unknown turned out to be not what they were expecting, and they're ready to journey back. They're ready to go back to where they came from. What they're being reminded of is that the heroes of the faith, they weren't journeying backwards. They weren't looking back to where they'd come from. Otherwise, they wouldn't have spoken the way that they spoke. As it is, he says, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Not this world, but the world to come, the heavenly world. They are, in that respect, otherworldly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Their focus is not here in this city, on the city of man. Their focus is on the city of God to come. They want a better country, 
that is a heavenly country, and they won't accept an earthly one instead. They won't settle for this country instead and be at peace in this country and say, this is good enough. They want a better country, a heavenly one. Now, we're accustomed to thinking of people like this as being too idealistic, uh, not realistic enough, right? Otherworldliness we see as more of a vice than a virtue these days. If there was a problem with Christians of the past, it's that they indulged too much in this desire for the life to come instead of focusing on remedies for the life we live now. I think what the author of Hebrews would tell us, and what Jesus Christ would tell us, is the best and most practical remedy for the problems of the here and now is the life to come that it isn't impractical or idealistic or wishful to focus ourselves on the life to come. It is the only practical thing to focus on. Because any hope that is invested in the here and now is going to pass away. The solution to the problem of the now is in the world to come. That is the solution. They desired a city Faith desires a city prepared by God. Right? Abraham wants the city whose foundations are laid by God. The city whose architect is God. That's the city that he wants to call his home. And people who seek that city of God will push every temporal city to flourish by imitating that city. It's not that we don't care about this world because we've got the next world. It's that having the next world, we won't settle for this world being what it is. And we'll constantly challenge it and push it and appeal to it and hold up to it the example of the city to come. This city isn't as it should be because it doesn't look like that city. What faith longs for is that kind of confidence. That kind of confidence that puts its hope entirely in the promises of God, in the things of God, in the city of God, in the life we have in God that is to come. That is what faith longs for. That is what freedom from the domination of sin really looks like. So finally, what does faith want from us? What does faith want from us? What does faith expect us to do? The answer there is pretty simple. I mean, this is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. What does faith want from you? Faith wants you not to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed. It's interesting if you look at Romans, you start with verse 1. Interesting language here. Uh, the beginning of the chapter actually parallels the text we've been looking at. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then, after he talks about sacrifice, he talks about this being not conformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he begins with sacrifice. Just as as the author of Hebrews begins, with the sacrifice of Abel. And on that good sacrifice, he urges us not to be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed. 
Nobody wants to be a conformist. Right now, it does aspire to just conform. And so you would imagine that we were a collection of people, certainly as, as freedom-loving Americans, that we are all non-conformists. And yet, as seen from above, as seen kind of on, on the, the perspective of time, there's still a lot of conformity in our behavior. I don't want you to be conformed to the ways of this world. I don't want you to assume that whatever the world says is right is right. But I also don't want you to be conformed to the culture of the church. I don't want you to give up one kind of conformity to like surrender to another and just do whatever evangelical culture tells you is right. Instead, be transformed, which is something else, something different. What does conformity look like? How could you recognize conformity in yourself? This is the hard part, right? Because none of us think we conform. None of us believe that we're just doing what everybody else does. We all think of ourselves as individuals. But conformity is trusting in the wrong sacrifice. The conformity is putting your hope in some other sacrifice than Christ. And there are plenty of sacrifices to choose from. Plenty of different ways of salvation that you could order your life around. And all of them are being conformed to this world. All of them are conformity. Conformity is having no confidence in a reward to come so you live your life for now. Because you believe it's stupid, it's foolish, it's not prudent, put all your hope in a reward to come, you make sure that you get your rewards now. You do what you need to do to make sure that happens. That's conformity. Conformity to this world. Conformity is not believing in a judgment to come. Conformity is being confident that everything's going to work out fine no matter what. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. In the end, it's all going to be taken care of. And there's no need to worry about judgment. And there's certainly no need to hold ourselves to any sort of arbitrary standard of what is right and wrong. The Bible can say what the Bible says. It's a very old book with a lot of traditional ways of thinking. But we've transcended a lot of that. We understand better that right and wrong are socially constructed. And, and the worst thing we could do is try to force these things in other people. Great, that's conformity. That's conforming to the world. Conforming to the world. Believing there is no judgment to come. Good and evil, right and wrong, those are ours to define. They are what we make of them. Conformity is not trusting in God to provide so that we look out for our own interests. And conformity is when the air mass drop, you put your own on first. You can better help those around you. You see to your needs first. And then, out of your abundance, perhaps you can help others as well. Because there's not enough to go around. We've got to take care of ourselves. We have no confidence in God's providence. That's conformity to this world. Conformity is not trusting in or believing in the promises God has made to do us good and therefore having no reason to hope no reason to sacrifice. I give up the things I give up now because I believe that in the future there will be more. It will be better. If there is no future, if none of those promises are going to be kept, there is no reason to sacrifice now. That's conformity to this world. That's conformity to this world. Conformity to this world is putting your confidence in anything other than Christ and Him crucified. That's what it means to be conformed to this world. So that when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, he's saying, turn your back on all of that. 
And to turn your back on all of that, you've got to turn your back on basically like the received wisdom of human beings from all time. You've got to act in ways that make absolutely no sense to anyone whose hope is not fixed on the world to come. Otherwise, you're conformed. So what is it to be transformed? Faith desires us to have a confidence, and that confidence, that confidence is transformational. We talk sometimes as Christians about the, the need to transform the culture. Christ will transform the culture. We talk about it, uh, our need to be transformed personally. Right? The change has got to start with me, that sort of thing, all of which is true. Transformation, I'm going to suggest to you, comes from, from a deeper and deeper reliance, a deeper and deeper confidence on Him rather than ourselves or on anything else. That's what it is. So what does faith want from us? Faith wants us to get out of the boat. Faith wants us to get out of the boat. It's as simple as that. The system of this world is corrupt. The system of this world, it's corrupt. It's morally bankrupt. And the only way to transform it is to disrupt it. The only way to transform it is to disrupt it. In your own small way, wherever you're at, with whatever uh, power you have, or not much power, whatever insignificant means you have at your disposal, you have to throw your wooden shoes into the gears. Do that small thing, that small opposition to the evil that surrounds you. That's what it is to be transformed. Don't wait for an army because it's not coming. And anyway, when armies rally to Christ's cause, he sends all but 300 of them home. And when crowds come to crown Jesus, he escapes across the water. When Jesus wants to throw a big feast, he likes to start with as little as possible. It's like we've got a few loaves, we've got a few fishes, we've got thousands of mouths to feed. Perfect. That's how Jesus likes to do things. The world says don't rock the boat. Just go along. Don't rock the boat. And because of that, we think that our mission must be to rock the boat. Our mission in this world must be to shake things up, right? to be rebellious, to be countercultural. Jesus doesn't want you to rock the boat. Jesus wants you to get out of the boat and come to him. You think of the story of Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, in the boat, and Jesus is walking across the water. Again, I mentioned Peter earlier, the guy who's always reacting the wrong way, the embarrassing way that I'm going to suggest to you is, is usually the right way. Everybody else on the boat, they look at Jesus walking in the water and they're seized with fear. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. I'm sure he's afraid, but he also thinks, I'd like to go out there too. He's the only one who goes out to Jesus on that boat. And it's what Jesus wants. He wants you to climb right out of the boat. He wants you to get out of the boat and go to him. Peter does exactly the right thing. But when we think about that story, the thing that we remember, we put ourselves in the moment, the thing that we remember is that Peter sank. He got out, he walked on water for a moment, and then boom, he sank. 
That's the, the, the image in your mind. It's the reason why you wouldn't do what Peter does. You'd be one of the disciples in the boat watching. And going, ha ha, Peter, you sank. But it's interesting. If you go back to what archaeologists believe is the earliest surviving Christian church, an old house church in Syria, and you look at the mosaics that have been preserved there, one of the scenes preserved on the wall is this moment where Jesus is walking on the water and Peter has come out to meet him. And the moment that they preserve on the wall is not Peter sinking in the water. The thing that they remember is the moment where Peter stretches out his hand to the outstretched hand of Jesus Christ. When we think about getting out of the boat, when we think about putting all of our trust, all of our confidence in him and in nothing else, immediately we think of sinking. But those early Christians, when they thought about walking out of the boat, the thing they remembered is that Peter made it to Christ. He made it to Christ. He drew near to the one who called him out of his comfort and out of his security onto the water that shouldn't have been able to hold him up. He walked to Jesus and touched him. So get out of the boat and you will make it to live the life of faith that is as simple as stepping over the side and letting Jesus hold you up. Get out of the boat and follow him like Peter did. Follow him by fixing your eyes on him alone. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.